It is good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? Amen. Amen. It's good to be reminded about these deep truths of the Christian faith, that we are one in Christ, with people all over the world, with people right here who come from all over the world. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. What draws people to a place like Calvin is that here we study everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so people know that if they come from China or Peru or the Netherlands or Canada, that they're going to be welcomed as brothers and sisters in this place. And this is one example, tonight is one example of many of how we do that here at Calvin. I have one announcement before we uh, get into the passage, which you were handed out, by the way, in case you're wondering what that was about. Um, This Friday at 7, by the way, Garrett, can I move this? Is this like a, I don't want to, that looks very complicated and important. Garrett, everybody, Garrett. Thanks, man. Um, Thursday night at 7 o'clock in the chapel, we are hosting a group called Fight the New Drug. And Fight the New Drug is a leading anti-pornography group, and uh, they have an amazing presentation. And it's Thursday night when? And where is it going to be? In the chapel. And now it's tempting to think, well, if I go to a presentation about pornography, everybody's going to think that I use pornography. Don't let the enemy tell you that's a lie that should keep you away from this presentation, okay? Let's just assume that many of us have that struggle. Let's just assume that every one of us knows someone who has this struggle, and we are going to stand together and say we are going to be brothers and sisters and fight this. That's what we're going to do. So Thursday night at 7, it's a great presentation. Some of you may be local. You may have a youth group. You may have a a guidance counselor from your high school or somebody who needs help with this. And I'll say, Fight the New Drug is um, very scientific. It's not a Christian, obviously Christian organization. And so even if you have somebody who's not a believer uh, but needs to know about how to deal with pornography, this is a terrific group. And so we really encourage you. And they also have some great free programs um, for those of us who are trying to get off this. And the Bruni Center will be there with their small groups. And so it's a great time for us to say that we stand in the light and we follow the Lamb. So Thursday night, 7 o'clock in the chapel, uh, bring all your friends. All right. So we are working our way through Revelation. And you are given a handout of Revelation 19, verse 11. I need a music stand. Is that a thing? I don't want to mess up anybody's. There's a lot of paper. Oh, yeah, there we go. Thank you. You're awesome. Is that okay here? It's perfect. Thank you very much. That is great. That is wonderful. All right. This is good. So, you got the little handout. All right. We're good? So we're going we're gonna to start reading at verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19. This is Pastor John, and he writes this. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, 
and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which with to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse and the sword that came from its mouth. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It gets better. <laughs> then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And if you haven't been reading Ezekiel lately, you may not know that Gog and Magog, Gog was a prince and Magog was his land, and both were fictional. They just represented the bad guys, all right? So uh, the more you know about Ezekiel and Daniel, the more revelation makes sense. So, you know, put that on your bucket list. Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle, they are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it the earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. 
and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Like uh, many people, probably too many of us, I stayed up late on Wednesday night to watch the end of the World Series. Yes, yes I did, I did. And while there are people who are like, woo, I was also sleep deprived the next day. Some of you are like, really? Really? You stay up late to watch a baseball game? Like my country doesn't even have baseball. Like, I'm an American, I don't even get baseball. I don't understand it, I find it kind of, like really? But you need to understand that for those of us uh, who grew up in the United States, the Cubs were a long-time laughingstock. They were um, great sermon illustrations for futility. (laughs) It was like, if you were trying to express the the sheer foolishness of something, you would say, it's like being a Cubs fan. (laughs) And everyone would go, oh yeah, I totally get that now. I mean, there's just this, this year after year after year suffering and loss of we are on the losing team again. We are never going to make it. I had a friend who moved to Chicago several years ago, and she got season tickets to the Cubs, and people said, why? <laughs> it was just hard. And so on Wednesday, there was this anticipation that something could turn, that something could happen, because for so long, to watch people be on the losing side gets hard. It gets tiring. And for some of us, that's not sports. It's life. It gets hard to be on the losing side. It gets hard to do things again and again and again and think, I'm not getting anywhere with this. This isn't going anywhere. And for some of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, this is life. Did some research this week using Open Doors, which is a nonprofit that studies persecution of Christians around the world. And I also read Christianity Today, which had a cover story on India. So between these two sources, let me give you some pictures of our brothers and sisters around the world. For 14 years, North Korea has ranked number one on the Open Doors World Watch list as the worst place to be a Christian. In North Korea, the very act of owning a Bible is punishable by death. An estimated 25% of the Christian population in North Korea lives in prison camps. Prison camps like in the Holocaust prison camps. And the 75% of Christians in North Korea who aren't in prison camps have to hide their faith. And this includes parents 
who try to hide their faith from their kids. Instead of pouring into their children, instead of teaching them Bible stories, they have to hide it just in case a child might say something to the wrong person that would put the whole family in jeopardy. That's North Korea. In Uttar Pradesh, which is the most populous state in India, one pastor was publicly humiliated by being half-shaven, put on a donkey, and adorned with a garland of shoes, which is very insulting. In the same place, a 75-year-old pastor was beaten. 75 years old was beaten. A 30-year-old pastor was tied upside down to a tree, beaten with sticks, and thrown into a pit. The head of the Evangelical Fellowship of India says not a day goes by without a pastor being beaten up, a church being attacked, or a Christian home robbed. That's this month's issue of Christianity Today. Nigeria. The killing of Christians in northern Nigeria, which is where Boko Haram is headquartered, the killing of Christians in northern Nigeria has increased 62% in one year. Someone who helped write the report said, this report shows that the extent and impact of the persistent violence on the church in northern Nigeria is much more serious than previously expected. Once Boko Haram is defeated, the problem will not be solved. Christians living under Sharia law, that is Muslim law, are facing discrimination and marginalization and have limited to no access to federal rights. Nigeria. And the tug we feel in our guts when we hear these stories, especially for those of us who are from those countries or from the countries neighboring them, the pull that we feel, the pain that we feel. You have to remember that that's exactly what it was like for the Christians who were living in the first century under the Roman Empire. That's what it was like for them. The people who first heard this word in Revelation were people who were living with that kind of persecution. As we've been walking through Revelation, we've learned that there are seven little churches that this letter was originally written to, and it was written to them by Pastor John, whom they loved. But there was one problem with Pastor John, and that's he was in exile on an island for preaching the very gospel that they were trying to preach. So they knew the cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus was seen in the life of their very own pastor who had been put into exile by Rome, kicked out, taken away from them. And because it was about the late 90s and the first century when this letter was written, they also knew about Nero and they knew about his persecution and the persecutions that came after. They knew about what happened to Christians in Rome. And they felt the ripple effects throughout the empire. They knew what it was like to have someone who was trying to step up into John's shoes get beaten up. They knew what it was like to be persecuted 
So imagine for them then, when they get this vision, they get this letter from John, and through the chapters that we've looked at, we've seen these highs and lows, this incredible revelation of what God is up to, the differences between good and evil. And you have these people who are under persecution, who are suffering, who've already lost friends, who've already lost friends in other churches farther away. They get this letter. And they get to this point in the letter. And things have kind of gone like this, and then, you know, the beast gets out, and then the woman gets out, and, blah, blah, blah. and finally, here we have heaven opens, and there's a white horse. You know that image, like, finally, the knight comes in on, you know, the knight in shining armor, the, the knight on the white horse. Like, this is where that comes from. Every fable, every myth, every play that comes that comes from here. This is, the, this is the root of that image. The rider comes in on the white horse, and a white horse, as we learned already, was a symbol of victory, a symbol of superiority, a symbol of royalty. But he's not the only one on the white horse. His whole army's on white horses. And they move toward the Battle of Armageddon. That's what happens next. We learned last week that Armageddon is a combination of two words. You remember, har means... Mountain, nice job. And Megiddo is a city, right? So Mount Megiddo was a city. It was a battlefield where lots of battles took place. It would be like saying, oh, where's the football game going to be? Well, you don't have to ask. It's at the football stadium, right? Where's the battle going to be? Well, it's at Armageddon. That's where we do battles, all right? That's the idea here. So here's this battle. So when pop culture talks about Armageddon, oh, look out, Armageddon, this is what happens in Armageddon. Jesus wins. Yes. Yes, he does. And he does it like in three verses. Did you notice like he hardly breaks a sweat? So you get the beast and the kings and their armies gathered to make war against the rider, and the next verse, and the beast was captured. Oh, oh, okay, okay. that didn't take long. And with it, the false prophet, and they were thrown alive in the lake of fire, and the rest were killed by the sword. It's like, okay. All right. So when anybody ever gets you just kind of freak out about what's going to happen in Armageddon, the end of time, you can just go, nah, all good. <laughs> it's like this fight is like if you had people over to watch like a boxing match and you, everybody said it's going to evenly match, it's going to go the distance, and you like that just start the fight and you go out and get a bag of chips and you come back and like one person's just down <laughs> on the mat and you're like, oh, I missed it. That's how fast this happens. That's how fast Jesus comes in and just says, whoosh, done. The enemy is done. And then an angel says, oh, uh, let me just, and, and I can't get the Jabba the Hutt image out of my mind with the chain and the dragon and the throwing. All right, watch the movie. Um, he sees the dragon, he throws him into the pit, he seals it so that he would deceive the nations no more. Not a single one of us comes from a nation that has not been deceived. Not a single one of us comes from a nation that does not deal with corruption and scandal and discouragement at the people we elect. Not one of us. Because the entire world has been impacted 
by the fall, by sin, by scandal, by corruption, and every nation has too. And that's been a big part of Satan's agenda has been to deceive the nations. But here's something cool that happens. There's this thousand-year reign of Christ. And there are are people who take this thousand years literally, and there are people who take this thousand years symbolically. All right? So in in the people who take this thousand years literally, we've got kind of two camps. One says the thousand years already happened. So they are post Millennial. Millennial over here, they're post, all right? And they say it's just, life's just getting better. Things are just getting better because the rain is coming. He's already rained and here we are. Everything's just getting better. It's a small group of people who believe that. Uh, But then you have the people who who think that the millennial has yet to come, that it's a literal thousand-year reign and it is going to happen, that Jesus will come back and then there'll be another thousand years And then finally, the consummation, the restoration, everything will be. And they say, so we are pre-millennial. All right, we're in this season where things could get worse before they get better. Pre-millennial. And then there are people who think that the the thousand years is symbolic. Like all of the numbers in Revelation, that it's symbolic. It's a number of completion. And they are called ah-millennialists. Ah meaning none, zero, nada. They don't believe in the literal millennium. And then there are the pan-millennialists who think everything will pan out in the end. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so our millennialists are like Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and most people in the Protestant and Reformed traditions. And so our approach tonight will be our millennialists. Our millennialists. <laughs> it's just hard to say. Now, some of you may come from a tradition that's pre-millennial or post-millennial, and that's great. That is perfectly fine. I want to point out that this is the only place in Scripture where it's talked about. All right? So this is not something for us to get all up in arms about because it's a very small idea in Scripture. Okay? Very small idea. So the amillennialists, never going to say that word, are the people who say this thousand-year reign, I'm just going to call it that now, the thousand-year reign is symbolic. And they believe that it started when Jesus was born, when he entered into the world, and it will end when he returns for the second coming. So they believe that Christ's reign is happening now. And they believe that Satan is limited in what he can do now. And they get that by looking at the Gospels, the stories that talk about the ministry of Jesus and Jesus' own words about his authority over demons, about his ability from the very beginning of his ministry to resist Satan, to put him in his place, about when he sends his disciples out and he says to them when they come back, I saw light, Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When he cans- gets a demon out of someone else, and someone says it's by the prince of demons that you're able to do that. And he says, no, it's only when you bind up the owner of the house that you're able to go in and save things and get things out of the house. So there's this idea that comes up again and again and again that the, that the power of Satan is limited, particularly when it comes to deceiving the nations. 
So at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, at the end of his ministry, when his time comes and he ascends up to heaven, he says to his disciples, go into all the nations and preach the gospel to everyone, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And remember, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So there's this idea that under the reign of Christ, the impact of Satan is limited so that the gospel can be preached to all nations. We are here in this room tonight because the gospel has been preached to your nation or to people who are in a different nation and then immigrated to this nation, as in my case. But the gospel is being preached to all nations, so there's this idea like we have to keep preaching the gospel to all nations during this time because Jesus has cleared the way is there going to be resistance? Is there going to be persecution? Absolutely. But it's limited. The power of Satan is limited. So that's the thousand-year reign. It's happening now. And the other great promise, the other great hope that is in this passage talks about the people who have died during that time, the people who have died having followed the Lamb, the people who have died because they are martyrs, because they were obedient to the Word of God. What happens to them? And there's this amazing promise where they are seated on thrones with Jesus. Did you get that? That is so amazing. It's at the very bottom of the one page. That I saw the thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their forehead. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years are ended. This is the first resurrection. This is the first coming to life. This is the first new beginning for those who have died in the Lord. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Now, the image that we usually think about when people die, we say things like, well, they're in a better place or they have no pain. Yes, true. But the best image of what we have about people who die in the Lord before Christ's come back is that they are seated on thrones. They are ruling. They are reigning. Christ is like, yeah, you get a throne, and you get a throne, and you get a throne. Everybody gets a throne. Now let me tell you, this is not normal king behavior. Normal king behavior is, I got a throne, you don't get no throne. That's normal king behavior. Normal king behavior is like, if you are a threat to my throne, I will take you out. It doesn't take a whole lot of historical research to think of kings or queens who have killed off anybody who was a threat to their throne, their own kids, nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters, spouses, just wipe them out. But the king of kings says, you reign with me. Because you have conquered. You have conquered the beast. You have stood up against the enemy. You are victorious. You reign. You reign with me. 
Now imagine what this was like for all of those people who first read this letter who could think of people who had been beheaded, who could think of people who had been martyred because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ and the Word of God. When the words blessed and holy are those who participate in the first resurrection were read out loud to them for the first time, you can imagine the relief. They're reigning with Jesus? That's awesome. That's fantastic. That is such a relief. That is such good news. But there's even more. Because what happens next is a judgment. There's a judgment that happens. And it says that people are judged according to their works. And if you've been reared in the Christian faith, this should be something that makes you go, I'm sorry, what? What? Time out. What was that? People are judged according to their works? I thought the whole thing was about grace. We can't earn our way to heaven. It's all grace. God does it. Works don't matter. Yes. And that's actually what's being said here. You see, if you try to present yourself at the end of time before the judgment and say, go ahead, look in the books. Check my record. It's all right there. It's going to be awesome. You are not going to do well. Because the things that are written down are, about, are all the things. All the things. All the lies you told. All the things you stole. All the things you should have done but didn't do. It's all written down. There's a record. There's a recording. There's an understanding. There's a depth of knowledge of who you are before the face of God. And that's why you don't want to put your works up. You want, to be, you want to be behind the works of the Lamb. You want to say, it's the work of the Lamb that I claim. Like we did last week, we say, I'm sorry for the things that I should not have done, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, including mine. And so there's this sense where the books are open, but then did you notice it's like, oh, but there's another book. There's another book. And you want your book, to, your name to be written in that book, the book of the Lamb's book of life. The people who said we are not going to worship the beast or the image, we are not going to turn to paganism, we are not going to believe the lies our culture tells us about sex or money or authority or power. We are not going to believe those lies. Instead, we are going to follow the Lamb. And we are going to be countercultural, and we know it's going to cost us. But we already know who won the battle. So it may cost us in this life, this short and momentary life. It may cost us in this life to follow Jesus Christ. It may cost us relationships, it may cost us jobs, it may cost us friendships, it may even cost your life. But you know who won the battle. And what difference does that make? Let me tell you about a woman whom we're going to call Hei Wu. She was in prison camp in North Korea. And when she's in prison camp, she felt God 
do a little stirring in her and tell her that she had to start evangelizing to the people in prison with her, which seemed like a suicide mission. As soon as you evangelize, the guards can take you out and kill you. And as soon as you evangelize, any other of the prisoners can report you. This is a story from Open Doors. For three long days, Hei Wu tried to ignore the calling God placed on her heart. But after three days, she could ignore it no longer as God had given her very specific instructions. He does that sometimes. These were hers. Share your cornmeal with another prisoner. It didn't seem like much. But when she gave her cornmeal to another prisoner, she was giving them life. I realized that was my calling, to bring life to those who are dying. By giving my own food, I was able to give them life and make a sacrifice of my own. This opened up many possibilities to share about Christ. One by one, more and more prisoners learned about this woman who was giving away her food, which is one of the very few commodities you actually have in prison. And they wanted to know why. Why would she do that? And so it slowly began to grow, and she had to think about where's the best place for me to gather people together. So she prayed for guidance. God, how am I going to do this? And this is what she said. God placed it on my heart. The outhouse of the prison was the only place we could worship. The outhouse of the prison was the only place we could worship. Right now, in North Korea, there are people who are worshiping in outhouses. After several years, Hei Wu was able to leave North Korea, but God used her to bring several people to Christ, and in that prison camp, there are now many outhouse churches. In the article in Christianity Today about India, talking about the persecution, the pastors that were beaten, and one of the leaders said this, the right prayer is not for persecution to go away. I'll say that again. The right prayer is not for persecution to go away, but for sustenance through it. My topmost prayer is for the integrity of the Indian church, for it to be more Christ-like. The integrity of the church is where the gospel is at stake. And that's not just true in India. It's been an interesting season to be a Christian in America. My prayer for the church is that it be more Christ-like. And now listen to the story of Deborah, who comes from the village in northern Nigeria where Boko Haram started. On April 25, 2012, followers of Boko Haram invaded her house, shot her husband in front of her, and took her two daughters, who were nine and seven. They came back three months later and killed her son. She was a Christian who married a Christian man and was rejected by her family. And so when her family was wiped out and taken from her, her birth family said, turn back to Muslim, Islam, turn back. She refused. So she left her house, the house where her husband had built, and she went in to live in an apartment by herself, not knowing 
what had ever happened to her girls. She says this, I will for as long as I live remain a Christian. It doesn't matter the threat. Life might not be very easy for me, but the grace of God will keep me going. My situation doesn't mean that God doesn't care about me. He does. Therefore, I will praise him even in this situation. Who knows? He may change my situation for the better. He loves me, and I will never let him down. Though I have a lot of fear about the fate of my children who are in the hands of Boko Haram, I know that millions of believers around the world are praying for me and my children. I might not know where they are or what their circumstances are, but I believe your prayers may reveal where they are and even cause us to be reunited. But I also take comfort in knowing that even if I may not see them again in this life, we will meet at the feet of Jesus. Now, the person who wrote this story for Open Doors added something at the end of it. They don't normally do this, usually just read the story about the individual, but this is what she wrote. For me, a worker who writes about persecution in this region all the time, this report, this story about Deborah, caused me great turmoil. I've made peace with the fact that there are things in this broken world I will not understand as long as I am on this side of heaven. But every now and then, I write articles on things that threaten to undo me. The story of Deborah is one of those that causes me to cry out, why, Lord, what good could possibly come out of this situation? As happy as I am for Deborah and the peace that she has found, I feel unsatisfied. I still don't understand why she has to suffer so much. It's simply wrong, and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of this world with all its evil, all its hardship, all its unresolved conflicts. It is too hard to bear. And then it dawns on me. Perhaps that is exactly the point. God does not owe me an answer about his dealings with Deborah, but the fact that I am feeling so utterly stripped of my love for this world right now is clearly part of his dealings with me. Deborah's suffering is weaning me from this world and causing me to long for the day of the Lord when all the wrongs of this world will be set right, and that is good. I can only join in saying, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Deborah and I are waiting for the day. What gives our brothers and sisters the strength to keep going? They know how the story ends. They know how this battle ends. If you did stay up late to watch the very end of the baseball game, you may have seen that for the last out, when it was hit to Chris Bryant, the ball starts to come to him, and you can see in the corner of his mouth just just a little hint of a smile. And the ball goes into his glove, and his whole face starts to do this. And he throws it to first, and he kind of falls down throwing because he knows that's how the game ends. And it ends with a win. And if Chris Bryant can get that excited about baseball, (laughs) my friends, we know how the game ends. We know who wins the battle. You know who wins. You know who wins. 
And we know what it's like to feel like we're on the losing time. We know what it's like to feel like we are not making any spiritual progress whatsoever. But let me remind you that you have brothers and sisters around the world who are praying for you, who are encouraging you, who long to see you when Jesus returns. We know how the game ends. And so we do not pray for the persecution to end, but we pray for the sustenance to go through it. Because Jesus is Lord, and he has won. He is winning, and he will win. And we are on the winning team.